mean, that ball got out of here in a hurry. Just a bit outside. If anything travels that far, I'd have a damn stewardess on it, don't you think? It's time for Powell at the Park. One constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. Cubs, Sox, all your Chicago baseball news. Dynamite drop-in money. Here's your host, Kevin Powell. Hello, friends. Episode number 29 of the Powell at the Park podcast post-trade deadline pod. Had to get one out this week. Talk to Tony Andraki. He's been on. He's the current front runner in uh, most appearances on the Powell at the Park podcast. Tony works at NBC Sports Chicago. He's my dude. He's my Cubs guy. He's my fellow Illinois State Redbird. So he's on to talk what the Cubs did and kind of take a look at the uh, final couple months here of the season for the Cubs and what we've seen so far from them. And then Scott Merkin. Everybody knows that name. Merck covers the White Sox for MLB.com. Appreciate him jumping on. And uh, if you know Merck at all, you know he's a diehard Michigan uh, Wolverines fan. So we'll get some thoughts, a little football preview from Merck as well. So uh, let's cut to the chase. Let's start with Tony Andrecki. All right, we're now joined by Tony Andrecki from NBC Sports Chicago. He's our front runner in current appearances on the Apollo at the Park podcast. I ran the numbers, Tony, because sabermetrics are hot these days. You've been on yeah. 37% of the episodes. Congratulations. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's a pretty good on-base percentage. That is pretty good. Uh, yeah, maybe on podcast percentage, I guess I should say. Right. Well done by you. You should be proud of that. <laughs> uh, wanted to touch base with you because you're my Cubs guy, and uh, the trade deadline has passed, and it's always interesting to see uh, fans' reactions from both sides, if a team's quiet or if a team's busy. And honestly, like my initial reaction to what the Cubs did was basically considering the budget, considering the thin farm system, it was about as much as Theo and Jed could do. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, uh, the budget thing was obviously a huge factor. You know, Patrick Mooney had tweeted a little bit more specific about it after the deal that, you know, the, the uh, Tigers were kicking at 500000 The Cubs also had to give up C.J. Edwards, and he's not making a ton, but, you know, they're probably saving, uh, you know, maybe close to 500000 with that move as well. So the budget thing is real. It, it really is. And Theo Epstein was talking about that last weekend in Milwaukee, you know, kind of talking about leading up to the trade deadline and he was like i'm not trying to temper anybody's expectations but you know the biggest move that we made already was kimbrel and that happened in in june so um you know yeah i think that was they had to get creative and they did and that's why you know some of the guys were just guys that were dfa like tony kemp and Derek holland but those are two guys that could really help the team and then obviously castellanos i mean he was the probably the best bat on the market and for the cubs to be able to get him was definitely an upgrade in a lot of areas yeah he hammers lefties he's a professional bat as, as that's the way jed hoyer put it he's a veteran type guy it, it does sort of feel like he's kind of the exact sort of bat they need in that lineup where, look, Tony, it's, uh, you know, I remember this time last year when, um, you know, I was kind of trying to reassure Cub fans, just relax a little bit. This is a talented team. And they never really hit full stride in the second half. And we all obviously remember how it ended. And honestly, I'm having flashbacks to last second half for the Cubs, where it's sort of an all or nothing approach for the offense. And they're not coming up with a clutch hit. It seems they're either scoring in bunches or they go on a few games stretch where it seems next to impossible for them to score. What sort of real impact do you think Castellanos has on this lineup? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know, and you know, it, it just like it's just too hard to tell. I mean, Daniel Murphy had what seemed like a great impact on on the club uh, last year on the offense in general, and just how he, you know, relaxed everybody in the lineup and this professional approach, and he was kind of filling the leader the leadoff role for them for a while, and he did well. I mean, his numbers were good with the Cubs last year, but even he wasn't able to stop this whole offense-breaking thing that they had at the end of last year. So to, to think that Castellanos will be able to do that himself is naive. But, I mean, it could have a huge impact. You know, if you figure that maybe he starts uh, at leadoff against lefties and then, you know, he plays maybe two-thirds of the time or 75% of the time against right-handed pitchers uh, and maybe hits two if they continue to go, you know, KB, Rizzo, and Javi, three, four, five, then that's pretty good impact, you know, and, and he is a guy that still is successful against right-handed hitters. So the Cubs need another bat, absolutely. Um, they they probably could use one more even still, but, you know, Ian Happ looks like maybe he could be that guy as well. So, yeah, I just think that kind of Castellanos mixed with a little bit that Tony Kemp's going to play and then you know the possibility of that Ian Happ is a little bit more improved as a hitter and then also the fact that hey Ben Zobris might be here in, in about a month now too so I think all of these different factors can certainly help change the Cubs lineup but it also depends on these other guys that are still currently with the team they really have to turn things around. Yeah, the Murphy comparison to Castellanos is is almost spot on because if you figure what their sort of style of play is, tough at bats, veteran bats, professional bats, but probably not the best defensively, especially Murphy last year where late inning situations he was almost always out of the game. Defensively, how do you think Joe implements Castellanos? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't know completely. Um, I imagine he'll probably play just corner outfield. I mean, he hasn't played third for a few years. I think since 2016 or 17 with the Tigers, and that was when they had you know they had designated hitter and stuff too there. So the Cubs obviously don't have that option. They're going to have to play him in the field. I figure Castiano is part of the reason why I also think he'll hit high up the lineup is because you kind of want two th- or you know three maybe even four at bats first, and then they would probably hope to take him out for either Happer or Almora for defensive purposes. So, um, you know, I, I imagine that against righties, Hayward will probably shift to center and Castellanos will play a lot of right field. And against lefties, Castellanos may play a ton of left field and Schwarber will sit. So, um, I, you know, it's, it's hard to see Almora getting a ton of starts for the rest of the year. And, you know, it, it's actually hard to see unless somebody's injured or needs a break. It's hard to see Almora get a start against any right-handed pitcher the rest of the year because Kemp can also play center field. What do you make of Almora? It seems like forever's fans it's so funny. Like last year fans were just screaming at Madden to get Almora in the yeah. lineup. And and Madden defended it. He said, Look, we're gonna play the matchups and Madden has said that now since the day since day one since he came to Chicago. Um and now fans are like it's like they're through with Almora all of a sudden, that quickly. And and I don't know if that's fair, but do you think Almora just uh what do you make of his season? Because he just really doesn't look like the player we all thought he could eventually be. Yeah, I mean, I, I was really high on him, you know, when the Cubs drafted him, and I got to see him play quite a bit for King County Cougars when he was there. Uh, you know, he wasn't there long, but we were doing a whole series at CSN 
and so he was a huge part of that. And, and so, I mean, even from then, it, everybody talked him up as being this special guy, this, you know, potential clubhouse leader. Like, I remember he said that he was originally chose number two as a uniform number because of Derek Jeter, and they thought that he could potentially have this Jeter-like impact in the clubhouse. And obviously that it hasn't worked out that way, and that's not, you know, a huge knock on him. It's, it's hard to live up to, you know, the captain-type leadership, but he hasn't had that kind of impact on the field. I mean, he has been one of the worst hitters in Major League Baseball over the last calendar year. Now the one thing he did well offensively was crush left-handed pitching, and now he's not even able to do that. So I, I really don't know. Um, all I know is that the Cubs, I mean, when every game matters and counts, they really can't be putting Elmore out there at any spot in the lineup, whether it's leadoff or hitting fifth or whatever. They just can't be running him out there every day and probably not even, you know, every day even against left-handed pitching. So uh, they, they needed an upgrade for sure. You know, I sense a lot of frustration from Cubs fans because it does feel like they've underperformed now for a year and a half, if not two full seasons. And I think there's a lot of reasons to be frustrated because the fact that they did do it in 16, you don't have all the pieces you had in 16, but you do have most of your core still. I think for a lot of people, the the, the thin farm system, the, the inability to develop young pitching arms... Um, do you think, I mean, this is obviously all hindsight, but whatever, bear with me here. Do you do you think that there was a mis-evaluation on, on guys like Schwarber and Almora from Theo and the front offense, offense and where there were times where people were, were hollering that maybe they should trade Schwarber because he wasn't going to fit into a National League lineup? And there were some that said maybe you could trade Almora too, but do you think there sort of has been the mis-evaluation on guys like that? Because their, their trade value has probably never been lower in their careers. I mean, a couple of years ago, you could have got a, a huge haul for a Schwarber, a huge haul for an Amora. Yeah, you know, I don't know that Amora's trade value is ever all that high. Um, it certainly was higher a year ago or two years ago than it, than it is now. It's only gone downhill over the last couple of seasons. But he's never really shown the ability to hit well. I mean, in the minors, he never, you know, he doesn't see a lot of pitches ever. So even when he's going well, but just, you know, it, there's no walks ever. There's no, he's not really a guy that's, that's valuable in this day and age because he doesn't hit the ball out of the ballpark and he doesn't walk. So he, he doesn't play the OPS game. And then when you're hitting 241, like he is, and you know, it's not like at least last year was 286, the year before 298 in the minors, he was over 300. Like at least then you're, you know, you're able to, to get by with stuff, but he just beats the ball into the ground. And so, yeah, I, I just don't know. I mean, it, it, I'm not sure why he's not able to make the adjustments that they want him to make or they uh, thought he could make. So, yeah, maybe it was a bit of a misevaluation there from the front office. Um, on Schwerber, I don't, I still don't think that it was a misevaluation. I mean, his progress just hasn't been linear, but it, it wasn't for Javi Baez either. And coming into this year, Schwerber had roughly as many plate appearances that Javi had entering 2018 before Javi broke out. And in a lot of ways, Schwerber looked like he was going to have a breakout season and then kind of goes into slumps. And I think that's more of 
you know, he, he's facing the shift and he's just a different type of hitter than Javi. But they're also really encouraging signs. I mean, Schwarber's, I think, 12th in baseball in, in average exit velocity. And, uh, you know, his walk rate is pretty good still. And he is cutting down on strikeouts a bit. So there are a lot of signs that Schwarber may be starting to turn a corner, even if the results haven't shown up yet. Um, but, I mean, still, I guess I can't really deny that there may be a bit of, bit of a misevaluation there as well because he still – he hasn't lived up to the fact that in 2016 he came back and was a Superman-type figure in the World Series. And you would never actually live up to that, but he's been just an ordinary, basically you know, slightly above-average hitter since then. Why do Cub fans get frustrated with Chris Bryant? I just don't understand it. It's, it always seems on Twitter, and look, it's Twitter, but it always seems like people are frustrated that maybe Bryant's not playing as well as he should be. Look, he's 291, 21 homers, 51 RBIs, a big on-base percentage. It just seems like there's – are fans looking for even more from Bryant? Yeah, I, I don't really know what that is either. I, to be honest, I'm just it, – it's baffling because – I don't know. I mean, I think it just kind of goes back to what type of player Brian is. He's not a guy that, you know, you're looking at. To He's not a Nolan Arenado type who makes such flashy plays on the field um, and then, you know, hits 40 bombs a year and drives in 120 runs and, you know, approaches 300 batting average and stuff. The way Brian does it all, it's just so much more quiet. And, you know, they always call him Silk. I think it was a name that, like, Bryce Harper and guys in Vegas gave him coming up. But it's because everything's smooth. I mean, the guy runs the base is extremely well. He plays really good defense at multiple different spots. He can hit in different spots in the order, whether he's willing to or not is a different question maybe, but uh, he, he can do it. And then, I mean, he, he has great strike zone judgment and gets on base well and obviously he can hit the ball out of the ballpark. So he just does everything really, really well. And I think fans kind of get frustrated because maybe it's a confirmation bias. They're like, oh, he can't hit with runners in scoring position. And they remember every time he doesn't hit with runners in scoring position yeah. and just assume he's not clutch. So I, I really I don't know what it is. But, yeah, it, it's pretty insane to me that fans can sit here and think that Chris Bryant isn't you know, one of the best players in baseball. It's wild. Yeah, he's a lead in my book. Um, all right, well, uh, it felt like we were kind of sort of a negative Cubs conversation, a lot of the negative things going on this year, but I think it has been a frustrating season for a lot of people. But look, as we record this, Tony, they're tied for first place, and they haven't even hit full stride yet. So they're right there. Um, I guess give me a little final 50-game or so prediction for the Cubs here. Do you think they, they, they can pull pull away with this division and and string some wins together? Yeah, I'm not so sure that anybody's going to pull away. I mean, even the Reds are still in it, and this is just such a good division. But uh, I do think the Cubs will still win it. Um, I think that they've just looked so much better on this road trip on the road. The results haven't been there, but they needed to play so much better away from Wrigley. And they still, believe it or not, have the second-best run differential in the National League, and by that should have the second-best record in the NL. So, um, you know, there, there are a lot of positive signs for the Cubs. And I think that with this trade deadline, there's you can get a, a kind of lift in the clubhouse too from guys like Castellanos and you know even a guy like David Phelps is a very under the radar kind of guy. So uh, all of this can give them the boost they need. But as much as anything, they just absolutely have to turn things around on the road. He's Tony Andraki. Follow him on Twitter at TonyAndraki23. Read all his Cubs stuff on NBCSportsChicago.com. He does a great job uh, covering the Cubs. And congratulations, Tony, again, for being the uh, most frequent visitor to the Paul at the Park podcast. Thanks, man. Uh, do I get a trophy or something for that? Uh, we'll see. 
Maybe you know, maybe okay. maybe come out. I'll meet you at the ballpark. I'll buy you a hot dog or something by the end of the year. Yeah, that sounds great. All right, hot dogs back of the center field bleachers. I'll meet you. Okay, thank you to Tony. We go from Cubs talk to White Sox talk. All right, we're now joined by Scott Merkin at MLB.com. He covers the White Sox. He has for how many years now, Merk? Have you been covering the Southsiders? Oh, geez, I go by manager, so I think it's uh, eight with Ozzy, five with Robin, three with Ricky, and one with Jerry Manuel, so 17 total. 17 years, Merkin. It's must-read stuff. you got to follow Scott Merkin on Twitter, at Scott Merkin. Uh, does a great job covering the White Sox. Okay, the trade deadline has passed, and really not a whole lot going on for the White Sox after being busy for the past few years when they were selling off pieces. Not much this season, Merk. No, you know, because I, I think they really, you know, the basic premise going into it was just assume they weren't going to make any moves unless something overwhelmed them. Because, mm-hmm. you know, there were some expiring contracts, John Jay, Ivan Nova, they have an option for Wellington Castillo next year, but I doubt they picked that up. And then, of course, Jose Abreu, who's a different story altogether. But, you know, I, I'm not sure what interest there was in those guys. Jay has been hurt, you know, and, although played very well since he's come back. Nova had been ineffective in the first half, although much better in the second half. And then, you know, as I said, it brings a different thing. But, you know, with Calame, Alex Calame, Aaron Bummer, Jace Fry, there's all control over those guys. Calame just next year and Fry and, you know, Bummer, I think uh, Bummer's a free agent in 25 and Fry in 24. So there's no reason to kind of push that in unless, you know, in, in terms of, you know, throw your chips there unless you know you're going to get something exactly what you want in return. So they listened to offers. They didn't get that, and they move on. And that, you know, can be read also. I know some people are, are bothered by that, but it can also be read as a commitment to 2020 that this team might be able to win. Yeah, there's that component to it as well. First of all, other than that, that Grinky block, Bluster. It was. It was. It was. It was a quiet deadline as well. It didn't look like a lot of teams were willing to sell a lot of pieces to get players. And the thing with Colomay, you know, they have them under control, as you said, for next year. It, and the kind of the point I've been making over the past couple of weeks is, if look, if you deal him, if you trade him away, if they play next year the way we all think they can play, you're basically looking for an Alex Colomay at the trade deadline. You know what I mean? So, right. to, so to your point, if you're not getting an overwhelming deal, you might as well hang on to him. I think it sends a message to a lot of the players as well that, as you said, 2020, I think they are ready to compete. You know, and I think some, at some point in this rebuild, you got to go from the top two or three spot in uh, MLB pipeline or, you know, on the cover of Baseball America's annual and prioritize winning. And people will say, well, you can develop, you know, relievers, so trade the ones you have. And you never know if they're going to repeat what they do this year into next year. You know, look at Jace Fry, who had a real nice year last year and struggled at the beginning, although it's been excellent over the last, I guess, like six weeks probably at this point. But, you know, my theory is if you've got these guys and you've got them under, you know, reasonable control, Colm is going to make some decent money next year through arbitration. Why not keep them? And we've seen what the bullpen has been able to do. I think they're unbeaten when they lead after eight innings this year, and that's that's a pretty good statement on what Colome and Bummer and Fry and Evan Marshall have done. So yeah, I, I think that's your core right there. And one less thing you got to do. You know, there's other things you got to do. You got to get another frontline starter. You need a, a big bat, even if you bring Jose Abreu back. And you know, probably add another reliever would help. But you already have uh, yesterday's no moves leave you with one area kind of kind of solidified. Right. Yeah, it was pretty evident that around baseball, teams were prioritizing team control on players rather than actually acquiring players. It kind of... And even players that were acquired at the deadline were guys that teams could control for many years. So, look, I, I was completely fine with what the White Sox did. It made a ton of sense to me as well. Okay, you mentioned Jose Abreu. What do you think they're going to do there? 
You know, I had thought all along they would bring him back. I, I, I'm still about 90% certain he's coming back. But, I, you know, not, I, I think they have to weigh what they have. You know, they have this young man, Andrew Vaughn, who they drafted number three overall this year, and he's already up to Winston-Salem, which makes sense because he's a, a polished college bat, sort of like Nick Madrigal was the year before. But I think there's an outside shot that Vaughn could be up by September next year. So, you know, I, put it this way, I, I think both sides will eventually come to an agreement because I don't think Jose Abreu – has another, you know, 10 years in his mind to play in the big leagues, probably another five. And the White Sox aren't going to sign him to that sort of contract. So maybe a year in an option or two years in an option would do the trick, you know, to bring Jose back. And Kevin, you can't win just with young players alone. You know, no rebuild has gone through that where they just, you know, they didn't add anything on. And you already have a veteran who's still an elite producer. And I get it. A lot of people have hit me with the, you know, his career low on base percentage is even below 300 this year. And he struggled since the start of the second half, but I really do believe his focus is just driving in runs. He doesn't worry that much about, you know, on base percentage. And, you know, I, I think he's, it'll pick up when he starts hitting a little bit more too. And he's just not doing that right now, but I, I think he's a guy you need. I think it, that's one of the things I wrote about today that you need to prioritize is, you know, you need to figure out what you're doing with the Brave. You need to add an elite veteran, either in the road in rotation and the bat. And I think you need to bring Robert and Madrigal up this year. And I'm sure that will be, strongly disagreed with by the White Sox themselves, but that's just my opinion. But I, I think Abreu is a valuable guy just beyond what he does with the bat and the glove, just what he means to these younger guys in the clubhouse. So he should be back for at least another year, if not a couple years. Yeah, I'm with you. I'd, I'd be very surprised if Jose Abreu doesn't return next season. Um, okay, since you mentioned their names, Luis Robert, Nick Madrigal, both at AAA now. Uh, can we get an official Merck prediction this year? Do you think Robert will be be called up and Madrigal? And if so, how I soon? Think, I would say they should, just in my opinion, because I think you get them started this year. I mean, I, I keep using the example of look what the difference in Moncada from last year with the experience he had to what he's doing this year, you know, and, and it really helps. Now, granted, it would be at the most like, what, six weeks? They'd probably, you know, the earliest either Moncada would be like mid-August. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think it's not quite the same scenario as Moncada, who had a whole year to play through. But I think you get them going. If you believe 2020 is – a year where you can say, as an example, the 2015 Cubs did, if you can make that move up, if you believe that Robert and Mandrigo have a chance to break camp with the team in 2020, then why not bring him up here? Again, I don't think it'll happen. Some people argue that, you know, you can't jump him four levels in one season, but I think if he's ready, he's ready. I, I don't think it's going to bother. And again, you can look at the flip side and say, well, geez, look what he's done already. If he finishes the year hitting 340 in Charlotte, you know, with whatever else he has along with it, that's great, but I do believe that they could. Eat. I think they could have handled, you know, a season at the big ones. I think you could have broke camp with both Robert and Madrigal. Maybe not Robert, just because of the fact that he had such an injury plague season last year. Mm. But I think you probably could have had them both up early this year, and they would have done just fine. So I, I would advocate for them coming up. I don't think it's going to happen though. I mean, man, you start to if you're a Sox fan, you start to fantasize about what your day one lineup looks like next year. I mean, you've got most of your positional players set. I mean, I mean, I, I would be surprised if Robert's not your center fielder to start. You have Eloy in left, Madrigal at second, Tim Anderson at short, and Moncada at third. And then you know whatever you do at first base. I mean, for the most part, that that should get you pretty excited if you're a Sox fan, especially. And then when you look at the rotation, I mean, you have Kopech coming back, you have Lucas Giolito, Leonardo Lopez has been very good over his last four starts after a very rough first half, and you have Dylan C. So. I think like a, a lot of the pieces are coming together, and then especially when you don't move on from some of those bullpen pieces, I don't see, and, and they, they haven't even spent money yet in, during this whole process. So let's see right. how this, this offseason plays out. I, 
I would be I would be shocked next year if they're not a, a, a pretty competitive team as long as they don't have any more injuries, which has been a problem over the past well, couple that, years. That's the key thing, and I think you have to keep that in consideration with you know Kopech next year coming back. I'm sure we'll be on some sort of excuse me, innings limit. Say that sure. ten times fast. <laughs> same with Dunning. Same with Rodon, who's going to come back later in the season, and even Cease, you know who had a career high of, what, like 124 and a third last year, yeah. is not going to be, you know, I don't think is going to have the reins completely taken off him. So I think, you know, it'll. they're certainly in place, and 21 makes sense more than 20. But if you look at this division, Kansas City and Detroit will not be ready to contend next year, probably not even close, especially Detroit. Minnesota's having a great year. They have some free agents in that rotation. You don't know if they can repeat what they're doing. And Cleveland always seems to be competitive because they always have great starting pitching. So, you know, you're really looking at one, you know, two teams to go after. And again, I, I get the, you know, the wild card picture. There's some very good teams in the American League besides that, especially, you know, at the top. But I, I think you're going to have a team put together if they stay healthy, which they have not at all this year. Overall, you're going to have a team that can be competitive. Okay, before I let you go, Mark, look, we've got a lot of time to talk about free agency, uh, the upcoming free agency class. Um but since we are kind of here at start of August over the next couple of months, are there some players that Sox fans should be keeping an eye on? I know Garrett Cole's name has been mentioned. He's going to ask for a ton of money. Uh, from right. a realistic standpoint, who do you think could be a potential target in terms of starting pitching and then maybe positionally a right fielder or a veteran-type bat? I, I couldn't give you the targets yet. And, and I think, though, you don't have to have Garrett Cole to make it a success. It doesn't have to be the number one guy in the market. But I think you got to stay away from the guys who, you know, I don't want to give any examples, but the guys who maybe are, are solid pitchers but not great, and you give them, like, the three-year, $45 million deal that doesn't quite play out. I think you want to get a good guy, a very talented guy, a guy who's reliable. doesn't have to be the number one guy. I mean, if you want to do that, if you feel like you're going to be in the running for that and you feel like you're going to be able to, you know, I'll bid everyone else to get Garrett Cole, then, geez, that'd be great to put him at the top of the rotation. That'd be amazing. But I don't think, you know, you, you don't also want to settle for kind of a middle-of-the-road guy who you pay a little more to. So I think that's what they got to be careful in in the, in the whole process. And that's just pitching. And, again, you know, I think, you know, an outfielder DH type would be good, but they have guys like this coming, so they got to figure out where the areas are they need to fill. It wouldn't be right if I didn't ask you about Michigan football. How are you feeling? Well, you know, I, pre- I start every year predicting they're going to win a national championship and then just kind of adjust from there. Last year, <laughs> I adjusted after game one when they lost to Notre Dame. Although, I will say, you know, I, I understand the outlook towards Jim Harbaugh, but, man, I've never seen a guy who went, I think it's 38-14 and 14 and been so heavily criticized. And I get he's got an interesting personality, and I get he was has been horrible against Ohio State. But the man won 10 straight games last year after losing to Notre Dame, or his program won 10 straight games. So I still have faith in him. Yeah, I think they have a very good team. I really do. I think the defense is going to be able to replenish itself. I think they have a great offensive line. They need to find a running back. But I think this should be this could be a real good year for the Wolverines. If they don't if they don't beat Ohio State or or win the East, is Harbaugh gone? No, no, I don't think so. I no, mean, this think is the guy they think... waited for. This is okay. kind of the prodigal son coming home. So I think barring something that's unexpected or maybe kind of embarrassing for the program, I, I can't imagine. You know, I can't imagine the only way he departs is if he chooses to leave, you know, that, that would be the only way I could see it happen. And they have a lot of faith in that guy. And I think he's going to, he's going to get it right. And he's going to, you know, do some big things there. I love Harbaugh. He's nuts. Well, good luck to your Wolverines, <laughs> Mark. I appreciate you taking the time to jump on the podcast, read his stuff, whitesocks.com, MLB.com. Follow him at Scott Merkin. Uh, thanks a bunch. I'll see you at the ballpark soon, Mark. Thanks. Okay, Kevin, take care. 
All right, that's a wrap for episode number 29 of the Powell at the Park podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Kevin Powell. Thanks to Scott Merkin and Tony Andraki for joining this week's episode. You can follow me on Twitter at kpowell720 on Instagram, Kevin Powell 720 wgn Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Yeah.